Good morning, friends. Our reading this morning is from the book of James, chapter 4, starting at verse 13 and going through to chapter 5, verse 11. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cities of the harvest, oh sorry, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're wondering how long you have to be off staff before you get called a guest speaker, the answer is apparently 11 years. So there you go. Let's pray. Father, we want you to challenge us this morning. Or maybe we don't. But I pray that you will do that anyway. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life is short, is it not? thought it started something cheery. Uh, life is short. And what's more, we don't even know exactly how short ours is going to be, do we? I mean, statistically, I'm a bit over the halfway mark, I guess, but it could end tomorrow. If there's a, a bus out there with my name on it, or a, or a chicken bone, or I don't know. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? We don't know. As it says in Ecclesiastes, life is a vapour, a mist. We're here one minute and go on the next. Life is short and unpredictable. You might remember that Jesus once told a story about that. Uh, It's called the parable of the rich fool because the guy was rich uh, and a fool. Uh, I love how creative they are with the headings in the NIV, aren't you? Uh, But this guy's rich uh, because he owns lots of land. Uh, His family probably acquired it over many generations of smart business dealings, and so now he's a big player in his area. 
And one day, as the story goes, he becomes super rich because his land yields a massive harvest. This is how Jesus tells the story. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what will I do? I've got no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. Ah, yes, the problems of the rich, hey? All this wealth, what am I going to do with it? And so he decides to hoard it. Uh, Stop working, retire early, live for pleasure, get some hideous pants and play golf. Um, Because after all, he's got everything under control, right? Or does he? Because you might remember from the snappy title that he's not just rich, he's also a fool. Why is he foolish? Well, Jesus goes on to explain. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? We see that he's a fool because he's forgotten that life is short. He's forgotten that he's just a vapor, a mist. He thinks he's the one who's running the show. And he gets a very nasty surprise when God reminds him of the reality. And just in case you missed the point, Jesus reminds us at the end that this world is full of rich fools just like this. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And so the message of this parable is that God is in control of our destiny, not us. No matter how much we might eat healthily and exercise, we could be diagnosed with cancer tomorrow. No matter how much money we've got stored up for a rainy day, our fragile global economy could wipe out our notional wealth in a matter of days. No matter how carefully we might drive, a drunk could run a red light and who will enjoy our no-claim bonus then? So don't run around acting like you're in control. Because you're not, says Jesus. God is. And that's pretty much what Jesus' half-brother says too. Uh, James must have paid some attention to those chats around the family dinner table uh, because in today's passage that was read for us just a moment ago, James chapter 4, Jesus, uh, sorry, John, who am I talking about? James, there we go, all J names. James takes some rich Christian businessmen to task for just this, thinking that they're in control and forgetting about God. So how do we know they're rich? In the first century, only the rich would have had the time and the resources to make business trips Uh, especially to be away from their home for a year. Uh, Here's how James puts it. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Um, And the Greek is actually a little more forceful than that because every verb there is in the future tense, saying we will go, we will stay for a year, we will do business and we will make money. That's the arrogance there that's totally out of touch with reality. And this is what James has to say to such people, to people who claim to follow God, but when it comes to how they live their day-to-day lives, they act no differently from the rest of the world. He says, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Wise words. Sounds a bit like Proverbs. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day might bring. 
And we know that this year, don't we? It could be a new COVID mutation, a new premier, a new sporting hero disgracing himself off the field. No, just kidding, we know to expect that one. But James then continues, sounding this time a little bit like Ecclesiastes. He says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Right? Again, echoing Proverbs, echoing Ecclesiastes, echoing Jesus, he says, you fool, life is short. And what's more, you're not in control of it. God is. So how should you go about planning your future then? He says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. But remember that God is the one who's in control, even as you plan and prepare. Because not to do that, says James, is evil. It's evil because it's a rejection of God's rule. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Okay, so what's the, what's the take-home point there? Is it just like, well, don't assume the future will pan out the way you expect it to. Uh, make sure you also factor in God, uh, and maybe add the phrase, Lord willing, every so often, to show that you kind of got the point. Is that it? Or is it a bit deeper than that? Because the next verse gives us a hint that there might be a bit more going on in this scenario. Because on the face of it, it's a bit of an odd fit with what he's just been saying about planning for the future. Verse 17 says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. You're right. What's, what, what's that got to do with what you've just been saying? I mean, James has just told rich traders not to live like they're running the show. To acknowledge that they too are just as dependent on God as the poor person who has to struggle to put food on the table each night. But then he draws this conclusion. Therefore, if you don't do the good you know you ought to do, then it's sin. Might be true, but how is that linked? Well, think back to that story at the start. James's brother's story about the rich fool. He was rich, we established that. And a fool because he didn't factor in God. Didn't think that he might die before he got to enjoy all his wealth. But is that the only way in which this guy in the parable was a fool? Is the message of Jesus' parable simply, well, you can go building bigger barns if you like, but you might not get to enjoy your wealth for much longer? In the Old Testament, being a fool wasn't about being intellectually stupid. Being a fool was about making choices that ignored God, that didn't have the fear of the Lord about them. A fool was someone who made bad moral choices. So think of our rich fool in the, par in the parable with the abundant crops. And at first glance, you might think he's, he's being smart, a smart businessman, a wise investor, maybe a careful saver. And yes, he is all of that. Yet if you look in the context of first century society, an agricultural society, it's also very selfish behaviour. I mean, for a start, what he's doing is he's keeping back grain from the local economy. Uh, and if his crops are that big that he needs extra barns to store them in, it's clear the guy is a big player in his local area. And so his decision to hold back grain has a knock-on effect for everyone else around him. Because in a bumper year like the one he's just experienced, you would expect food prices to be quite low, which is great news for the working poor. But by holding it back, what he's doing is he's effectively keeping prices artificially high. 
And yes, this strategy was around in the Middle East long before they discovered oil. Now, of course, this strategy is good for him, not so good for everyone else around. And more significantly, his inner monologue makes it really clear that he's only in it for himself. He says, what shall I do? I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, in a community in which the vast majority of people were living in poverty, in which most people only had enough food for today and had to go out and earn their daily bread again tomorrow and the next and the next, in this kind of world, the idea of storing up grain for years, it's obscene. But without God in the picture, why not be selfish? without an understanding of God as the loving Father of everyone, without a grasp of the responsibility that comes from being richly blessed by God, it makes perfect sense just to look after himself. And this is why Jesus condemns not only this rich fool, who after all is just a fictional character in a parable, but everyone who acts this way. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. This is how it will be with those who know the good they ought to do for the poor, but don't do it. These wealthy merchants, they weren't just ignoring God, they were also ignoring their responsibility for others. That was their sin of omission. If anyone then does not, uh, knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. So it's then no surprise that the very next thing James says at the start of chapter 5 is a judgment on the rich who do nothing for the poor. Like the prophets of old, he pronounces coming judgment on them because of what they have not done. Have a listen. He says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Now, there are some really strong connections here. You'll see the underlying words that make sense in a second. With what Jesus says when he comments on his own parable about the rich fool back in Luke 12. About seeking the kingdom of God first. Instead of hoarding like the rich fool, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Both James and Jesus are clear. It is sinful to hoard wealth. It is sinful not to be generous to others, sharing with them what God has blessed us with. To be indifferent to the poor is a sin of omission, which means it's very much still sin. And ultimately, that kind of attitude will destroy us too. Hoarding wealth is pointless in light of eternity, in light of the fact that we are not the ones in control of our life, that we don't get to decide how long we enjoy our wealth for, and that in the end it perishes, it rots. It fades, it rusts. 
And the only thing that will remain is the evidence that we were selfish. That our treasure was not God and his kingdom, but our treasure was ourselves and our comfort. Well, James then continues his rant, but he moves beyond just sins of omission this time. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields and staffed your 7-Elevens are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters and fruit pickers on working visas and Deliveroo drivers have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And this is in direct defiance of the Old Testament law in Leviticus, which says, do not defraud or rob your neighbor, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. James continues, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've lived the high life and become fat from your wealth. But he says, in light of the coming judgment, it's just like an animal being fattened, ready to be killed and eaten. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Again, that verse seems a little bit sort of where'd that come from out of left field, but it seems to be an allusion to a, a first century BC Jewish writing called the Wisdom of Solomon. The context of that is quite interesting as it mocks the reasoning of rich fools. They think, well, life is short and that's it. There's no judgment, only death. So, hey, let's enjoy life while we can. Eat, drink and be merry. Let's exploit the poor. Let's exploit the widow, the elderly and anyone who's weak. And, here's the connection, let's persecute the righteous because their presence among us is an inconvenient reminder of our own godlessness. But, says James, that's foolish thinking. Because there is a consequence. There is judgment. He says, don't think you can be a true follower of Jesus while neglecting the poor, let alone exploiting them. Verse 17, again, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire because you've hoarded wealth in the last days. And Jesus says this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but isn't rich towards God. Confronting passage, isn't it? So what's that got to do with me? I mean, I pay my taxes, which go to fund social security for the poor here in Australia and overseas aid for the poor elsewhere. Got a couple of sponsor children. I fill a, a shoebox once a year for Samaritan's Purse. And I try to remember to put money in the little tin when I take something from the bread table after church. I mean, you can't say that I don't care for the poor, at least a bit. Now, sure, all those things are good. Uh, but in my opinion, they come under the category of, well, that's the least I can do given what God has blessed me with, living here in Australia with a standard of living that puts me in the top 1% of the world's population. Where some days, not all days, but some days my most pressing problem seems to be that my all-in-one remote control won't send the right set of infrared signals to watch Netflix, so I've got to press all of the buttons individually. Right? You know, the struggle is real. So apart from the obvious, you know, giving directly to the poor in my community by things like food hampers, or the even more obvious by sponsoring more children through organisations like Baptist World Aid, what can we do? Now be careful here because you may not want to listen to some of these suggestions. 
Because if you think, hey, they're good ideas that Christians should do, then that will be good that you know you ought to do. And if you don't do it, then that is sin for you. Uh, Ignorance will no longer be bliss. So if you want to run out now, feel free. But if not, stick around, here goes. Firstly, there's fair trade. You know, where you buy the products with the fair trade logo or something similar on them. Showing that the production has not exploited farmers and workers. That a fair price has been paid for those goods, even if it means you need to pay a little bit more. It also means that we're not indirectly exploiting the poor, holding back their wages somewhere over there that we don't see so that we can have cheaper coffee and clothes and continue to grow fat from our wealth. And you think, okay, what does that really do? Well, it does stuff. Over the past decade or so, we have seen some successes in this. Uh, Chocolate was one of the first targets since cocoa farmers were amongst the world's most exploited. And so community groups and, and church groups around the world started to encourage people to boycott the big producers and only buy fair trade approved brands. Until a number of years ago, Cadbury gave in and made its supply chain fair trade approved. Global giant, all it took was enough people standing up for change and it happened. By contrast, Daryl Lee didn't get on board. And in an article for the Sydney Morning Herald uh, a few years ago, the financial writer cited this as one of the main reasons that led to its demise. By some of us changing our purchasing patterns, we can bring about change around the world. Uh, Coffee is another area where we're having an effect. Uh, More and more suppliers are seeing fair trade certification as just the bare minimum of what their customers expect, the least we can do. Now, I'm a bit more of a coffee snob, so I'm more into this one, but my dealer, I mean supplier, is passionate about this, right? Dealing directly with growers in places where they actually kind of have personal connections with the farmers in Bali and and some parts of North Africa, Um, helping them own their own farms, that's important. Uh, and even posting pictures of the farmers and their kids on their website when they visit them each year. Coffee farming, too, is beginning to change for the better. Now, unfortunately, there are still many areas where action is needed, as you can imagine. Uh, The most pressing, I think, at the moment is the clothing industry. Uh, We were reminded of that uh, about eight years ago with the disaster in Bangladesh, where poorly paid workers slaved away in unsafe conditions, in factories that weren't properly maintained. And hundreds died as a result. Analysts were blaming the constant price pressure from large discount chains in the West for the poor conditions. You think, what can we do about that? Well, again, your shopping choices are part of it. In the wake of that Bangladesh disaster, a number of big brands signed a safety agreement to lift the conditions of workers. It's a start. It's not brilliant, but it's a start. And for the last decade, Baptist World Aid Australia has been producing a report that grades each brand on the fairness of its supply chain, on how they treat and pay their workers. Uh, Some, like Cotton On, Outland Denim, Kathmandu, Jeans West, Country Road, they were kind of early adopters, doing pretty well. Uh, From the bigger discount stores, Target and Kmart were kind of leading the way there. A lot of others have a way to go, but at least they've improved the transparency of their supply chain. So we can know as a consumer the conditions that the goods were made in and we can make informed decisions. And all of this was a result of the pressure of groups like Baptist World Aid and Oxfam and many others. 
Uh, if you're interested in finding out about that, I encourage you to do that. You can download the report yourself so you're better equipped to make shopping decisions. All you need to do is Google behind the barcode Baptist World Aid and you'll be able to find that report each year. But as we've seen, it only takes a relatively small number of people to change the behaviour of large companies who are scared of losing market share. So as Christian consumers, the least we can do is to make sure we're paying foreign workers a fair price for what we consume. You with me? I think the same goes for the growing underclass of workers in our own country. Those who are systematically underpaid by franchise owners, often many of them are being squeezed as well. Or those who are kind of scraping a living in the so-called gig economy with unstable work, being paid a few dollars to deliver food and alcohol and pretty much everything else just so I don't have to leave the house, right? even when there isn't a pandemic on. I think in this case, perhaps the least we can do as Jesus followers is to have a stash of five or $10 notes or whatever near the door so that we can top up what little they get. Secondly, there's foreign aid. It works. Since 1990, studies have estimated global foreign aid has been responsible for saving about 14,000 child deaths per day. But there are still many more children dying. And I'm cranky at both sides of politics for this one because neither has followed through on their commitments. But perhaps I should be more cranky at a voting public that makes it the easiest thing to cut in the budget without facing an electoral backlash. So again, our government needs to hear our voices on this. Write to your local member. Sign petitions at oxfam.org.au. The least we can do is to work to hold our politicians accountable to their commitments on foreign aid. And while we're at it, let's not whine too loudly about why Australia wasn't at the front of the queue uh, in global queue to get Pfizer. Right? When people were and still are dying by the thousands in countries that don't have the capacity to produce any vaccines for themselves. Let's be good global citizens in that way in our attitudes. And of course, there are refugees. Uh, let's not pretend it's a simple issue. I'm not going to pretend to solve it now. Yes, we need to prevent refugees arriving in unsafe conditions that puts their lives in danger. And we also need to think about how to resettle people in places where they are well-supported, navigating a new culture, a new land, where they're not just going to get ghettoed and left to become resentful at their lack of opportunity when they compare it to our lives. But surely the use of this is an opportunity to score political points, as we've often seen here in Australia and around the world, is not the way forward. Surely God's grace compels us, as it ought to have compelled the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God's grace compels us to be concerned and to care for the poor, the foreigner, and the oppressed. As Christians, let's become leaders in the debate. Avoiding the extremes, not a naive open-door policy that leads to social unrest and division that we see in a lot of places, but not a hardline, compassionless nationalism that's always putting our own interests ahead of those who don't live in this country. That might be what we instinctively want to do, but it's the opposite of what the gospel calls us to do. It's the opposite of what the whole story of Scripture, of what being God's people, calls us to do. Now, you may disagree with some of what I've said, that's actually fine in terms of the detail, right? 
how we can best care for the poor and the oppressed is very much open to debate. We should always be sharpening our ideas on that, doing what is effective rather than what is just merely symbolic and tokenistic. How we can best care for the poor and the oppressed is open to debate, but that we do care for them is most certainly not up for discussion for followers of Jesus. As Jesus said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me pray. Father, help us to go against our nature, to go against that desire for security for me and those whom I know and love. Help us to mirror your compassion for everyone, whether they look like us or whether they don't, whether we know them personally, whether they're on the other side of the world, just one of countless statistics. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to love as you love, to give as you give. Help us to become generous with our wealth to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.